This is the Memory Palace. I'm Nate DeMeo. And this is the uh, one time a year I ask you, the listener of the Memory Palace, for your support. There are lots of ways to support the podcast. Um, you can write a review on iTunes. You can tell your friends about it. I guarantee they probably don't know it exists. Um, but by far, the best way to support what I do here at the Memory Palace is to become a member of Maximum Fun. About two years ago, uh, the Memory Palace became um, one of the Maximum Fun podcasts. It's a network of podcasts um, run here out of Los Angeles, where I live. And since signing up for Max Fun and um, participating in its annual pledge drive, um, things have changed for me and for the podcast. Um, this is the reason why they come out as regularly as they do, which truly is as regularly as I can possibly do them, um, as hard as that might be to believe. It's because people like you come out and support the Memory Palace. I'm going to ask you to go to MaximumFun.org and support the Memory Palace by becoming a member of Maximum Fun. It's a monthly membership. Um, you can pay what you want, $5, $10, $75,000, whatever you can afford. The money that you're spending goes to support what I do and what the folks at Maximum Fun do in terms of giving people like me and the other podcasters on the network a chance to make at least a little bit of money making things that they love and sharing them with you folks. Become a partner with the Memory Palace by becoming a member of Maximum Fun. It's easy. It's fun. It helps keep this thing going. It helps me know that you're out there. And that's the pitch. So please go to MaximumFun.org. There's not going to be a Memory Palace Kickstarter. I'm not going to flood you with a bunch of ads. This is the way to support the podcast. Thank you so much for listening. Thank you so much for considering this. And here is episode 60, 400,000 stars. The observatory on the hill was old even then, in 1877. And the worn-out floorboards would groan when Edward Pickering climbed the dark staircase to the telescope in the tower. The telescope had done good work. It had found Saturn's eighth moon, had first spotted that planet's innermost ring. The first daguerreotype of a star, Vega, the second brightest in the night sky that hung over Harvard and its old observatory on the hill, was taken with that telescope. But those discoveries happened long ago, when the old observatory was new. So what could its new director do with it, with its outmoded telescope? and with its staff of nattering young men, the Harvard students, who were phoning it in, or telegraphing it in, or whatever you could say of lazy, entitled grad students in the late 19th century. These guys drove Professor Pickering nuts. He had work to do. He had observations to make. He had data to collect, numbers to crunch. And these bright Harvard men couldn't be bothered to make a careful calculation. Pickering said his maid could do a better job. So he hired her. For 25 cents an hour, William Mina Fleming came to work at the observatory. She swapped a feather duster for a pencil, a wash tub for an inkwell, and did simple mathematics for Mr. Pickering, adding up columns of figures, filling spreadsheets in leather-bound ledgers, sitting at a desk in a dusty corner of the observatory's third floor. And at the end of her shift, she turned her work over to her professor, 
and watch his face light up at the neatness of the rose, the clarity of her penmanship, how a one could never be confused with a seven, how even after long hours, her tired eyes never seemed to mistake a three for a two, and he'd smile at his best assistant, this woman who had once been his maid. At 25 cents an hour, he hired more maids and school teachers and store clerks, women who'd rather work in a dusty office than a mill or a grocer or a shirtwaist factory. There's a photograph of Edward Pickering on the steps of the observatory, surrounded by 13 women, each with high neck collars and long dresses that hung down over hidden petticoats and corsets to the tops of their shoes. Pickering is in the top row, in his three-piece suit, professorial and rumpled. If there aren't patches on the elbows, there might as well be. He wears a thick walrus mustache and a look of smug self-satisfaction. Maybe because he's the one man surrounded by all these women. This group his colleagues joked about and called Pickering's harem. Maybe it was just because he knew he was getting an incredible bargain. At 25 cents an hour, the women were getting far less than his former male assistants. Far less than any man, really. Any converted butler or baker or bookkeeper would ever have taken to do the tasks set before them. But he knew that few men at any price could do any better than Williamina Fleming, a woman he came to trust and admire, and who discovered the Horsehead Nebula, or Margaret Harwood, who went on to be the first woman to run her own observatory, or Joanna Mackey, who discovered the first Nova in the Lyra constellation. They're in the picture, near the gloating Pickering, Maybe he's smug because these women and their cheap labor allowed him to do important work and make the types of astronomical discoveries that no one thought were even possible to make in such an old observatory with such antiquated instruments. For Pickering came to realize that the future of astronomy wasn't in glowing points in the sky, but in data points, in mathematics, in well-ordered numbers legibly rendered in charts and tables, and accurately filed and made searchable and shareable. And for that, I will now commend the professor, before I set him aside. And commend Williamina Fleming, and Annie Jump Cannon, and Joanna Mackey, and Margaret Harwood, and Molly O'Reilly, and Edith Gill, and Evelyn Leland, and Florence Cushman, and Marion White, and Grace Brooks, and Arville Walker, and Ida Woods, and Alta Carpenter, and Mabel Gill. There in the photograph, and the other women, not pictured, who worked for Pickering over the years. And who, at 25 cents an hour, worked together in that dusty office in the third floor of the old observatory in the hill, all day, day after day, adding up rows, cross-referencing columns, filling ledgers with figures, making sure their sevens didn't look like ones, making sure the lace ruffles at their wrists didn't dip into the inkwells. For 25 cents an hour, they'd peer through magnifying glasses, looking down at photographs that Pickering had taken by looking up at the night sky through the old telescope. And then they'd count the stars, each one. They'd make a note of the star's relative brightness, and then they move on to the next one, and the next one. 
while the women beside them would work their own small corner of a photograph, work their own small string of some massive calculation. These human computers, like the women in Iowa during World War II who plotted possible trajectories of mortars and cannons, creating charts and graphs that guided the weapons of men right then, fighting in France, in Italy, in North Africa, or the women after the war at the University of Pennsylvania plotted potential paths of intercontinental ballistic missiles trained on the Soviet Union, and then plugged that information, literally, into the first mechanical computer, a room-sized thing called ENIAC, that led to something smaller, and something smaller still, that made the women's jobs obsolete. For 25 cents an hour, the women in the old observatory in the hill did the work of laptops, and not particularly smartphones. They spent years of their lives on work that takes fractions of fractions of seconds today. Granted. Yes. Fine. But these women ordered the heavens without ever needing to look up. Some had washed floors, had counted bags of flour, noted numbers of nails and screws and shoe polished tins on store shelves or transcribed, or filed, or were dictated to. And now they counted stars, counted all the stars, some 400,000, everyone that could be seen back then, unaware of how many more stars were out there, or what a woman would be able to see one day. They counted everyone, 